welcome to episode 283 of Retro Encounter, RPG Fans Weekly Podcast of Many Topics. I'm Mike Solosi, and I'm joined today by Eva Padilla. Hey, And making her triumphant return after a break of something like six months, which is unforgivable, I say, Audra Bowie. Hello. Sorry. You can be forgiven. It's okay. <laughs> I was briefly upset that I haven't heard from you in so long, Audra, but now I feel much better. So... Uh, welcome back, Audra. Welcome back, Eva. Uh, we're here to talk about a game that, oddly, we have been putting off the recording, maybe more than any specific episode, at least in recent memory. Because um, now, please correct me if I get any parts of this timeline wrong. We were brainstorming ideas for new episodes in late 2020, and I think Eva suggested Crimson Shroud, the subject of today's episode, because you have an ongoing interest in the works of Yasumi Matsuko. Does that sound about right so far? <laughs> um, I don't know. Is the is the Vagrant story Ultimania I just got today? Is that um, any indication of of my interest? Um, it's yes. It's, it's an indication of incredible timing that may be cosmic indeed. Yeah. Um, and I, and and I think Eva, you mentioned it first. Then Audra in the same chat uh, like ex- expressed appreciation for like, oh, Crimson Shroud. That that that's a really cool game. Like. You had either already played it or were already familiar with it. Is that Audra? Is that right, Audra? Yeah, I'd already played it. So Eva suggested it. Audra co-signed it, and I like it, it. Vaguely rang a bell in the back of my brain, but I but I couldn't really remember what Crimson Shroud was. So I briefly looked it up and thought to myself, "Wow, this this thing is crazy. This we totally should play this and do an episode on it." So we were going to do it in early 2021 then it got pushed back a month then another month and then another month and now we're finally playing it in april 2021 crimson shroud the uh 3ds eShop exclusive game from level five and uh designed by yasumi matsuno uh he of tactics ogre final fantasy 12 vagrant story and uh many other very interesting uh games that you know, have a, a very specific kind of gameplay design and narrative flair that I think is very recognizable to people that have played as many RPGs as the three of us. Absolutely. A very specific flavor that he brings to every meal. Yes. So how are we feeling that Matsuno Spice this time? Uh, Crimson Shroud came out in 2012 for the 3DS, pretty early in the 3DS's lifespan. I think the um, it really didn't land until 2010 or 2011. Um, and the 3DS eShop has been a successful storefront, I think. I mean, a lot, a lot of people like downloading things onto their uh, Nintendo clams. Um, but there aren't very many eShop exclusives to my memory. Like, it, it felt weird discovering that this was an eShop exclusive. Do we know many other games like that? Or am I the only person that thinks it's weird? Um, there was the other guild game, I think, that came... I know of one, the Starship Damry. Oh, okay. That came out that was um, a level 5, too. This yeah, it was under, like, a project umbrella for level 5 called Guild or something along those lines. You know, that... I think that checks out. I'm not... I'm not I don't really know uh, what their, their guild project is, but level 5 has been a very strong 3DS and DS supporter for uh, decades now because they um, level five has a real weird diverse portfolio. They started out with the dark cl- uh, cloud games on PS2. Um, they were 
co-developers of a couple Dragon Quest games in a row on PS2 and DS. They made something like seven or eight Professor Layton games on the DS and 3DS. Uh, a, a comparable number of Inazuma Eleven games for you, uh, for your, um, you know, anime soccer JRPG enthusiasts out there, mm-hmm. and uh, I think they're mostly a yokai watch machine now, and that's a that game and that game uh, was a real weird one because it was a 3DS game that sold badly, and then it, and its anime its anime came out and it suddenly became a number one seller a year after uh, like like when it was a year old already. So level five big supporters of Nintendo's handhelds. So it sort of makes sense that they would at least dip their toes in the waters of, uh, of 3DS shop um, exclusivity. And one of the end results of that is this partnership with Matsuno for a game that uh, I'm going to have to describe in terms of other games, but is at least very interesting to talk about. Um, so uh, Eva or Audra, who, whoever wants to chime in, like uh, what's, a level five thing that we love besides Crimson Shroud, just because just I think we've somehow avoided talking about that company in six years of podcasting. Well, I really, I really love the whole. I haven't really played many of the other games in the guild series that they had, um, as we had mentioned. But it was this really cool thing for the eShop, where it was this sort of. Um, there were two guilds, each one had three games, and it was this sort of boutique thing where you had these notable developers and working on these games. So you had a game by uh, Goichi Suda. You had one by Keiji Yudafure. You had this one by Yasumi Matsuno. So it was like having these big developers and big names um, working on these smaller sort of uh, indie budget titles. And I think it brings out some interesting parts of them where some of them kind of had some difficulty with having this smaller scale, whereas uh, Matsuno thrived. And I think it's kind of a testament to level five that they're willing to do uh, something strange like this, something kind of like an indie, you know, an indie rock label or something. Yeah. yeah. All right. Now I, um, now I feel extra bad for not having heard of this before, because I'm, I'm looking at a list of the games and uh, one of them is uh, Attack of the Friday Monsters is described mm-hmm. as an homage to 1970s tokusatsu. And, yes. oh boy, if there's, <laughs> if there's five things you, will, you know about me, one of them is my love of to- tokusatsu. So, yeah, it's a really cool idea having these small to medium-sized games, um, like boutique developers uh, made by well-known auteurs of sorts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, the, the more I think about it, the more I sort of like it. And... Um, and it looks like all most of them came out in 2012, but the seventh one in the in the miniseries came out a couple years later. But uh, I mean, being a JRPG centric podcast and a JR, of, of that's part of a JRPG centric website, I think Crimson Shroud might be the most logical uh, game in this group to tackle. Mm-hmm. So yeah. let's let's move on to Crimson Shroud proper. Uh, this game. I, I mean, I was going to say it right out. This game feels like a tabletop campaign, like really, really strongly. Uh, from the the sort of uh, third person um, or, uh, narration, or I should say, first person narration that's clearly within the, the mind of a specific character, to the navigating a map that you can sort of touch and move around in, to uh, the abundance of dice rolls with included dice rolling physics. And maybe most notably of all, uh, every character in the game, both uh, humanoid and monster, is 
a game piece right down to having a square base and uh, otherwise being immobile and uh, shaking when they take damage and flipping over when they when they die. It's uh, like there's a lot of visual flair and gameplay design that is so so tabletop. And uh, I, I I don't know this 100% for sure, but this feels like a tabletop campaign that uh, Matsuno did with some of his friends and then decided to make a video game out of. That, that I don't know if that's exactly true, but it feels like that. Yeah, it certainly does, actually. I mean, just visually alone and how they incorporated the dice rolls and everything, it really kind of just makes you think that someone was playing a tabletop game one day and thought this would make a really good video game. Yeah, and I think and I think with that, um, because they tried to make it this sort of tabletop thing, it works really well within the the probable budget constraints. Because if you're not <laughs> if you're not doing all these fancy animations and such, you can just focus on the mechanics and you can focus on you know, <laughs> all you have to do is flip the piece over or make it move forward slightly. And that's pretty much the extent of the imag- uh of the animation that you're going to need. Um, so I think it works really well for this. And it reminds me of when I was younger doing things like playing, playing a game like HeroScape and kind of the narratives that you'd craft from that. So my, uh, my version of that was playing Hero Quest, which is sort of a, 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 a board game with some DN, light D&D element, D&D elements and RPG elements. I think the Hero Quest board game became a bit hard to find and now like collectors jealously, um, <laughs> won't let Garden. go of their copies. Yeah, exa- exactly. <laughs> but uh, I, I really think that at least part of the design philosophy going into Crimson Shroud was capturing some of the fun tactile parts of a ta- of a tabletop game, especially down to the pieces and the dice rolls. Because the, the physics of of rolling dice, you can just um, tap A a couple times and have it automatically roll, but you can use the stylus to shake the dice in in your hand and release it to let go. Uh, dice can even fall off the table if you shake it too vigorously, and a dropped die will can be applied to a future roll. And, um, and, and like, the dice rolling around on the touchpad of your DS, like, they look good. Like, I'm not, I don't know if it's Havoc physics exactly, but it's, it's like there is a dice rolling physics engine at work here that some effort was put into, and that's wild to me. <laughs> Did anyone accidentally um, roll the dice off and bonk someone on the head? Oh, I, I don't. I don't know if my. I, I did roll them off the table once or twice, but I don't know if it, if it hit one of my pieces. <laughs> you can you can bonk someone on the head if you like. If you really get uh, a little a little wild with the dice roll, it will fly off and like bonk one of the monsters on the head. It's really funny. Oh wow! Take, I didn't know that. Do they take damage? Because now I think I might need to try that. No, it's it just oh. like it just goes, you know, out of the out of the dice roll and into the back into the, the sort of pool. But yeah, it's really funny when it happens, though. <laughs> the the game's uh, act, the RPG parts of the gameplay are uh, fairly straightforward, turn based, but they give you a lot of skills and a lot of variables to play with. There's uh, item melding and a huge amount of loot to collect and armor affecting uh, affecting what skills you have. Um, and there's different, like, it, it, kind of like how in uh, Dungeons & Dragons you can have sort of a, a free skill and then your main skill and, and to act twice during battles. Uh, like, 
uh, moves that are called skills in Crimson Shroud uh, are separate from attacks or spells. So you can do a skill and a spell in one round or a skill and, a, and, an, and an attack in one round. And having your skills synergize with the second action you're going to take or whether you do a skill before or after your attack, all of those are considerations you can make. And my skill lists and spell lists got... I don't know, uh, not confusing necessarily, but a, 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 a little, you know, I, I was I was a little whelmed because like uh, like tinkering with my characters would affect my skill skill loadouts, and I'd have to change strategies, and I accidentally uh, changed too many equipment slots right before a boss fight that had me missing oh, a few yeah. key skills for that boss fight, and I that Oof. that's on me. But like, there's there's just a lot of tinkering in this game, and a lot of items and loot and systems to pay that, attention to. Yeah pay attention to for a game that's not very long it's only uh my, my playthrough was I, I think less than six hours like five and a half hours so th- there's a lot of effort into unusual details like dice rolling and skill mechanics for a game that i i'm not i don't want to say doesn't justify them but for a game that doesn't that, that like I, I i would expect a long detailed rpg to have this depth of mechanics but it, instead we got a a, a, an amuse bouche of an RPG with this depth of mechanics, which which is very interesting. A little a little appetizer, a jalapeno popper of a of mm. a <laughs> of a JRPG. Yeah, th- th- this is the uh, this is the spicy um, flash fried calamari of RPGs. Perfect. <laughs> uh, it does. I mean, it does encourage replayability with the new game plus. So I guess maybe they thought it extended it enough to justify. I beat the game once and did not explore the new game plus deeply, but uh, I'm, I'm assuming there's stronger enemies, different loot, and a few new story paths to unlock, or at least one new story path to unlock. Yeah, there's a there's one new story. Path. I know there's one new ending. Okay, right, and a new area to explore. But yep, there. Oh, so is there is there like a full fifth chapter of content? Um, basically, I mean, it's, yeah, it, it's not necessarily like a fifth chapter, I don't think, but it is like a branch that leads to, um, that a basically, outcome. right, it takes you past the, it takes you past the chapter four of the new game, um, and just kind of down a different path. Um, and yeah, but having put 12 and a half hours into it or so just because of things that we'll get to later which are kind of frustrating um i will say (laughs) that the battle mechanics do hold up even even after all that it's just a solid system and i love matsuno but he never gets crafting right and oh my god in crimson shroud he finally makes crafting accessible oh Oh my my god Wow, I thought you were going to say this is just another <laughs> another like bullet in the list of of bad Matsuno crafting because I, I um, Eva, you and I were on a podcast a little less than a year ago talking about Tactics Ogre and crafting in that thing was maddening. Crafting, crafting in that game is pretty bad, and it has just some really weird quirks in terms of um, things not actually. Um, going through and your crafting just not working out. Um, Vagrant Story is the most <laughs> whack crafting system I've ever seen where it's like, I'm going to take an axe and I'm going to meld it with an axe and somehow I'm going to get a crossbow. How does that happen? I don't know. It, it, and, and that game is so dense and uh, m- mechanically and so... Uh, 
uh, so opaque me- mechanically for the crafting to be that weird on top of everything else like almost felt like vagrant story wasn't playing fair with me yep oh. <laughs> um but this game this game kind of because it's like distilled matsuno there's a lot of i feel like there's a lot of things that he tries to get away with in other games and longer games that he can't really do so here um which is a lot of times to the benefit of crimson shroud all right, so we, we talked about sort of what Crimson Shroud is and some of the mechanics. Let's get into the story a little bit, because one thing that I associate with Matsuno is that the worlds of his stories always feel like like ten times the size of the story you're playing. Uh, and it, like uh, I mean, just going into the, uh, the Codex section of a game like Tactics Ogre or Final Fantasy Tactics, there's, there's so much more that happened before the events of the game and or elsewhere during the events of the game that are not in the moment to moment text of the game that like like i feel like when matsuno designs a game if the game's script is 50 pages the game's lore notebook of all the side of all the information you don't see is 500 pages like you're following where i'm going but uh i hope yeah. but uh <laughs> But it, that's definitely true in Crimson Shroud because this is a not a very long game. That is basically one. That's basically three rogues going on a uh, uh, like like that, that took a job to find something hidden in a dungeon, and that's most of what this game is. But we're getting um, we get uh, hints of um, political machinations between at least four different groups and uh, a like a legend about a king receiving gifts from God that might've been twisted over the centuries by those groups. Um, uh, like conspiracies about, about magic and, uh, and history. 100% Matsuno, but almost incredible that so much thought went into this kind of game for it. Uh, and, and just, uh, to, just to identify a couple of those groups, um, chasers are sort of the term for, uh, adventurers or bounty hunters that uh, this game uses and your and your team of uh of Jacques Lippy and Freya are three chasers um there's a group called the Senate which are sort of the uh the the central political power of the of this world the Knights of the Peace are the Senate's uh personal army and the, the character Flint is a general or a captain in the in the Knights of the Peace um there's a more religious organization called the Conclave that is make that uh is trying to like create a divine origin or a divine justification for all of the magic and all of the weirdness that happens in this world. The gatherers are a secret organization that collect magical artifacts, which are called gifts and, um, and, and try to keep them from the conclave in the Senate. And then the quiche are a, is are not a d- uh, delicious eggy um, <laughs> breakfast cart, but, um, but a, uh, but a, a, a race of nomadic people that uh, are um, so- somewhat spiritual in nature and-, and connected to and connected to the world's magic in some way. And the main character, or one of the main characters, Freya, is a woman of the quiche. Yeah. Or should I say kish, just so it doesn't sound like I'm t- I'm talking about the food? <laughs> yeah, let's just go with kish. <laughs> okay, let's say. Kish. I usually say it's kish. So. But I, I I do like my kish with you know uh, spinach and Gruyere in it. Now, Ooh. I mean you have. You have Kish, but how do you pronounce the uh, one of your rogues' name who has too many vowels? Yeah, um, my five years of taking French in high school and college want to say Jacques, but I think my brain prefers Jacques, so I just called him Jacques the whole time. Same. <laughs> well, yeah. not the French part, Jacques. but but Jacques. <laughs> <laughs> All right, l- 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 let's call him Jacques. Um, 
uh, Frère Jaca, Frère Jaca, dormez-vous, dormez-vous. Uh, but anyway, um, enough uh, French nursery rhymes, rhymes back to Crimson Shroud. Uh, now, as you go through the dungeon, you'll get like a cutscene, not necessarily every room, but a couple times each chapter, and this game's divided into four chapters, that will tell you a little bit about one of the characters or a little bit about the world's state or a little bit about one of the world's um, histories uh, or, or like uh, uh, historical events or legends that flesh out the world a little bit. And I thought all of them were pretty intriguing and they cover a lot of ground for this being such a short game. Uh, was there anything about this world or its politics that you found particularly interesting or, or noteworthy that we, uh, that uh, we, we haven't gone over yet? Well, I just, I love the, Kish in general, the whole concept of them and their connection to the big bad was actually pretty interesting. Yeah, and I really like some of the, some of the flavor that they have for the Kish and um, of your party, Freya is um, is of the she Kish. She has the most personality. Yes, she has some of the strongest personality, I think. Yeah, she is. Yeah, she is a bit. Um, yeah, her personality, she can be a bit standoffish, but she is um, a member of, you know, the Kish being this ethnic minority group. And the um, I really loved uh, their connection to water. Um, you know, it reminds me a lot of these sort of like water is life movements in, you know, in the United States, especially over the past four years over pipelines and such. But how much emphasis they place on giving water to someone else as if you're um, giving them life. And it's, I really love that part about, um, the Kish. The, the Kish reminded me a, a, a little bit of, I, I don't know, like, like a little bit of like modern gypsies in how they are a sep, uh, a persecuted minority that, uh, w with a sort of an insular culture, but also kind of like, oh, you know, you know, kind of like desert Bedouins. Or the, or, the, or the Nabataean peoples, which were a, a proto-Arabic civilization that uh, that founded the city of Petra hundreds of years ago. In, in that they're in, in their they're sort of a desert people with with a deep connection and uh, and uh, to water in a way that s sort of uh, made sense to me. And and maybe I mean maybe the Kish are based on the Nabataeans because the because they seem to have a um, they were the dominant civilization of the land at one point but after their kingdom fell due to corruption from magic other groups arised and i think the uh this the religious conclave organization would love to um keep all the kish influence out of their history that they're trying to rewrite absolutely yeah and and with and with matsuno games as as always there is uh there is an idea of history not being what it seems in this game mm -hmm. as well. And oh, yeah. there's mm -hmm. a, oh, yeah. there's a, you know, there is a certain faction that is controlling the mechanisms of history and how it's being told. Yeah. I think the, the gatherers conclave and Senate are all sort of fighting over the history of the world to a degree. Um, one plot point that comes up in the second half of the game is uh, the player learns that the actual mission of Jacques and company is to locate a monk named Andalay. Uh, and they, they were given that mission by a high-profile senator who had some kind of connection to Andalay. Like he was uh, 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 Andalay's um, second cousin or, or uncle or something. And uh, when they search around and find him in this old abandoned monastery with uh, 
some books missing, um, Jacques is able to glean that Andalay was looking f- through forbidden texts, found something very important, and then that te- that important text uh, was sto- was stolen from Andalay, and uh, and Jacques tracks and company track them down to the uh, to the former Quiche ruins Kish ruins that uh, that that are the the dungeon run of this story, and so it, it's clear that. Andalay was able to find some connection or some clue towards the Crimson Shroud, which is said to be the most powerful of all magical gifts. Uh, um, Andalay's um, senator contact definitely wants it uh, for power reasons. The Conclave wants it so they can, you, you know, so for, for power reasons and also to, uh, you know, uh, write their own version of the history. The Gatherers want it because they want to collect as many gifts as they can to prevent the Senate and Conclave from getting to them. And yeah, it, it it's it, it like it's this game is sort of a a manhunt turned bounty hunt turned treasure hunt through these ancient mysterious ruins that but they they tell they uh, Matsuno or the, the game's writers keep enough story sort of behind a curtain to add, <laughs> add, to keep the player off balance and keep the player invested for sure. Like like the more I learned about the story, the more I'm like, well, now I definitely have to see this game at the end. Yeah, they were very great at just revealing it in a, at a nice pace that kept you invested. So I, I think we enjoy the tabletop flavor and most of the writing in this game. Uh, but let's talk about the one thing I think we alluded to it before that we really didn't like. And the event flagging for this game can be a little strange at times. Like sometimes you have to leave a room and re-enter a room. Okay, wow. Uh, apologies for the technical difficulties there. Uh, we were talking about the um, how some of the event flagging and, and plot machinations of Crimson Shroud are tied to random drops, and it's probably the most frustrating part of the entire game. Or, or maybe not probably, maybe definitely. Uh, Eva, what was your experience dealing with the random drops in Crimson Shroud? Um, pain? <laughs> it's the... This game does so so many things right. There's a lot of things that I really love about this game. There is a fatal flaw, and it is this random key item drops. Because if you're going to have random drops for, like, what is it? The Sword of Kings in Earthbound or, or something like that, where it's like a 1 in 64 chance or something. But, you know, if it's something that's an optional item or something that makes the game slightly easier, that's fine. Um, for Crimson Shroud, for the new game... And for New Game Plus, uh, there are two different key items that you need for story progression. Um, And they drop from random enemies. That's a terrible design decision that I, I I cannot defend, really. It's maybe if the, maybe if the chance of it dropping was higher, it would be a little bit um, more forgivable. But I spent... 12, 13 hours into this game and fully a fourth of that was just on one encounter in New Game Plus, trying to get this second thing for New Game Plus progression. Yeah, I put about 16 hours in just trying to get, and a lot of it was spent just item scouring. Yeah, I mean, I I thought I had it bad with maybe a dozen times um, trying to get that uh, obsidian from those skeleton mages, but this second drop a new game plus sounds worse. They wanted you to suffer. 
Yeah, they, they want you to earn that second ending, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 I never saw the second ending, but um, let's go, let's I guess let's go back to the story a little bit. Um, at, at the end of the uh, of the dungeon, you sort of realize that this was a trap. Um, um, a uh, a woman named Abigail, who was one of the apostles of the original Kish King that for, that uh, that that you know first um, founded this thriving civilization, uh, has been like living in immortal suffering for a thousand years trying to uh lure adventurers to a uh, to a fictional artifact called the crimson shroud when in fact the crimson shroud sort of is abigail herself uh but abigail needs a living kish person in order to uh and and and, and needs to possess them in order to sort of reach her full power and, and sort of become uh, is she trying to become a full human again, or is possessing someone of her of Kish ancestry like just important for her to get, gaining her full powers? Is, is that really explained or understood? I'm not sure if it they ever explained it if she ever becomes fully human again. She just I know she just wants her powers. Okay, she wants her powers. She she can leave the ruins because she does some. Uh, she does some plotting to try and lure the monk Andalay towards the uh, the, the tome. That uh, get that gets people um, lured to the ruins, but they, I, I guess she needs to possess a ki- a kish person to um, re- in order to, to fully like fully leave. Yeah. All right, maybe, but it's like it's clear that um, Abigail's the person who was creating these summoning circles that are bringing undead and demons and monsters into these ruins. Um, you do fight one demon boss in chapter three. And uh, and I think a dragon boss soon after. I think those are like the two chapter three bosses. And uh, for me, the most challenging encounter in the game was the one right before Abigail, where you, you fight uh, sort of like three evil versions of your, of the three party members called the I think they're called the Witch Kings. Yes, they're awesome. Yes. Uh, I love this. It, it was it's it's the coolest fight in the game and the most interesting fight in the game. But I also died to them. I think I think I died to them twice and beat them on the third time, but those two times were arduous. Uh, you you roll some dice uh, to see how badly they ambush you, and one and on one of my unsuccessful runs, they got eight free turns before I got to act. Oh, <laughs> that's right. And uh, and another time they envenomated two of my characters, which is basically a poison that I don't think you can cure normally. Um, or at least I didn't have the means to cure. They, they, uh, they, they really were rough on you. I, I, I finally got to, uh, I finally beat them when I just really went all out and trying to eliminate the Freya Witch King, just so I, just so I could have a, a three-two advantage to slowly chip away at. But yeah, that's the best fight in the game, but also the one that that gave me the most trouble. Absolutely, I, I do love when a game presents you with that though where um basically you're to fight t- the dark versions yeah it's the dark link you know it's it's yeah. you know it's when the most difficult fight in the game is like yeah you've had some you've had some tough scrapes but uh what about yourself what about your inner struggle and, and so i really like my, my the, favorite- the witch king uh dynamic with that my favorite version of this is fighting vise Ina and Fina in uh, in Skies of Arcadia. Um, a uh, and, and I think they're only in the Skies of Arcadia Legends version, actually. But uh, s- still, like 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 fighting the um, 
you, you know, you know, like like the, the the mirror version of yourself. It can be done really well in uh, in video games, and this is a great version of it. But uh, but yeah, the the Witch Kings were uh, probably the most interesting uh, fight in the game to me. Also, the most challenging. It's a great balance to strike. And I think if I were to run through a new game or new game plus, I would maybe try to farm some more of their weapons because <laughs> I, I use like every single item they gave me for the uh, uh, for for the final boss. Because and and you fight Abigail, uh, aka the Crimson Shroud itself, right after the Witch Kings. Abigail, I, the, the sort of ending and conclusion that you come to—it's a cool, it's a cool fight, and it's maybe the one part of the game where I'm like, ah, I wish they might have had a little bit of a bigger budget to be able to animate this and really give it its full grandeur. But mm-hmm. but it's not, you know. It, it's not. It's not the. It's not a deal breaker. I, I mean, I, I I know she's called the Crimson Shroud, and she's basically this sort of vaguely formless red, uh, red bloody apparition. But because it was this flowy red thing on top of a sort of a brown or black pedestal, I really thought it looked like a red coat on a coat rack. I, I really <laughs> thought. I, I th- that exact thought occurred to me fighting her. Just, it's just Carmen San Diego. Like it's just Carmen San Diego <laughs> lounging around. And you're just seeing like not even Carmen San Diego lounging. Like Carmen San Diego is in her den in sweatpants while right. her trench. While I'm, I'm fighting her trench coat exactly. that is in her hall closet. Exactly. <laughs> Completely. After you do defeat Ab- Abigail, and you do defeat Abigail, Abigail sort of wins in the end because. Uh, um, most of this story is um, a captured or escaped Freya relaying this to Flint, who's trying to track down the Crimson Shroud on the orders of the Senate. And when he, uh, his, when Flint gets word that his army is tracked down uh, where Lippi, Lippi and Jacques are, um, he gets down to the ruins. And it's, uh, I'm not, and I'm not sure if. Uh, if Freya was already there, or he takes Freya with him to the ruins, but uh, Abigail, who we should mention, looks exactly like Freya, uh, and is interested in you know taking over Freya's body, which I think we did mention. Um, Jacques and Lippy are holding back Abigail so she can't pre- uh, possess Freya, and Freya escaped only to be captured by Flint. But with Flint's arrival, it's enough of a distraction or enough of a disruption for Abigail to slip by. Jacques and Lippy, and and succeed in her plan. But basically, the bad guy wins if you, in the first yeah. ending of the game, <laughs> and she gets to exact her thousand years of uh, of 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 planned revenge on uh, the the world that had wiped out her uh, her civilization, or at least that's what I I, I hope she does. Because I mean, what else is she gonna do? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I think she wanted her revenge. That's basically, most of that. Yeah, and it's yeah. I I forget what it is that the, um, I forget what it is that ends the the first playthrough. There's some sort of line that they end it, and I can't remember what it is now. But it's just so haunting, and it gives it such a full bodied sort of creep up your spine. Um, when when you get to that ending, you're just like, hmm, this is. This is not working out well for anybody but Abigail, but uh, yeah. I'm kind of okay with it. <laughs> yeah, you, you get a, an image of uh, Lippy, Jacques, and Flint 
sort of like uh, with their arms against a an invisible barrier, like like hitting it like some kind of a desperate mime. Um, <laughs> While uh, while Abigail sort of is sashaying away with her hips to one side, like like, like Freya's permanent pose in her little game piece form, um, <laughs> I, that, that always made me think that 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 Freya like might have a, a back problem or something because like, she's always <laughs> in, she's always in this like in this like curved shape pose <laughs> for the entire game, <laughs> and, and, and I'm like, oh man, that can't be comfortable. That's too bad. But it, it it's a a bit of a bleak ending, but also kind of like like cool bleak yeah, yeah it's, that would be how i describe it, it was kind of a cool way i'm ending it's the kind of uh, bleak ending where you're like you know what i'm cool with that i i don't and with this being a, a shorter rpg and such i don't really need um i don't need a persona style um wrap up you know where it's a few hours mm-hmm. of kind of the the denouement whatever and the um everyone kind of having their loose ends tied up this one's just like no nothing nothing is tied and chaos will reign have fun <laughs> yeah you, you, you don't need to like dragon quest 7 visit every important npc to see how they're doing before things end nice and neat this is this is a uh, a vague bleak ending with the implication that uh the world may be might face an apocalypse for um because of this thousand year old sorceress right and yeah it and it makes you not really care about doing a new game plus ending where there is more you know every things are kind of more tied up the loose ends are no longer loose and such yeah it's it's a happier ending, but it's not to me i kind of feel like the first one's more impactful yeah and i mean i'm not sure i can think of a video game where uh the intimidation factor of a character and how unintimidating their name is has such a disparity because because abigail is not a cool world-ending sorceress name i'm afraid <laughs> well there's chester and is three yes yeah, chester Chester in East Three is Chester is a very uncool name for that cool character. That that, that is exactly the same kind of vibe. Um, but and Abigail for in like my the video game Abigail I'm most familiar with is the boss from uh, from Final Fight, who's who's like a giant Mad Max clown man. Um, different Abigail from Crimson Shroud for sure. Uh, and and I was I was surprised to see Abigail of all people show up in Street Fighter Five, but that's an entirely different genre. Or, or actually, no, Eva, did we did we decide Street Fighter Five was an RPG a few weeks ago? Of course, <laughs> maybe we did. Yeah, all right. <laughs> okay. Anyway, back to street back to back to street, back to street Fighter. Back to- <laughs> <laughs> all right, this is now a Street Fighter podcast. What are your thoughts on the recent patch? Uh, do we think that um, that Ryu's like forward punch V skill is too broken or not? Um, uh, I, you know what? They better not patch out the Danfinite. That's all I can say. <laughs> I, I don't know, like that that Punko Dan that you that you see online that that feels a little unfair. I, I think Dan is is due for a nerf. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> Um, back to Crimson Shroud. Uh, uh, back to this Abigail and not this, and not the, the Capcom Abigail. Um, that. All right. So we uh, we like the, most of the storytelling in this game. We like a lot of the RPG mechanics in this game and the tabletop flavor of this game. Um, I think we also like the Hitoshi Sakamoto OST in this game, don't we? Yes, it's a very good OST. 
it really felt like Final Fantasy Tactics at times. Like like even mm-hmm. even down to the like like I like there was there were licks that sounded like FF Tactics licks. Absolutely. I mean, it's you know, and we we had mentioned this with um with Muramasa as well. When you get a Sakimoto score, it's always going to be at least very good. And this one's no, you know, this one isn't any different. It's it, it is very tactics influenced, but just like with um the game itself, it just feels like a it could be a it feels like it could be a slice of Evilies with, you know, the with the, the tags, you know, with it being like an off-brand Ivalice story. Um, yeah, I, I was I was going to ask you, is this a secret Ivalice game? It, even the art style is very reminiscent, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, don't, I don't think it is specifically, Aww. but like, like, like you could fool me into it. Like, like it, it, it would, like, it could totally be a Gaiden chapter of, uh, of an Ivalice story. Mm-hmm. And I think so much of that is, you know, one with it being a Matsuno thing, but also it being a, a localization done by Alexander o. Smith and Joseph Reeder, who um, who localized uh, Vagrant Story and FF12. Um, and so they kind of... I, I, I think also the War of the Lions version of FF Tactics, right? Um, that was uh, Tom Slattery, I believe. I, oh my, my bad. Okay. They may have been consulted on it, but um, it's but there's such a particular tone that they have, and you know, for anyone who's played FF12, that is, you know, people have their feelings on the story, but I don't think anyone is going to knock the English localization. It's basically it's pretty close to impeccable. Yeah, it's a pretty solid localization. No arguments for me. It's, it's excellent, and I, I was mistaken. It, lo- it looks like he uh, uh, Smith did work on the Tactics Ogre game that you and I played last year, That's right. but, but not but not the War of the Lions version of FF Tactics. Um, he uh, he has worked on several other Final Fantasy games in the flat in the past. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I hope, I, listeners, I hope you are at least picking up on this. But um, while we have our frustrations with this game. And while it, it's brief at uh, definitely under 15 hours for even a complete uh, second playthrough, uh, I, we're very positive on this. There are so many interesting parts of Crimson Shroud that I, I'm not going to it like uh, leave you angry voicemails insisting that you that you blow eight dollars on the 3DS eShop to play it. <laughs> but I, I think this gets a recommendation from me. Like it's it's not very long and it's interesting and cool. And I, I, when I, when I finished it, like I, um, it, it didn't. I said this the same thing about Muramasa last month, but this game didn't wear out its welcome for me. Like I, uh, I was left um, interested in continuing to play it, and not left glad it was over. And and that's and that's a you know about as high a compliment as I can pay to a video game now. Because I mean, I'm I'm 35 years old. I'm an adult that uh, that has less time on his hands than a bored teenager. Um, but and I don't want to put words in either of your mouths. Uh, is this also a recommend from uh, from both of you? Uh, you go first, Audra. I would say so. I really enjoyed it overall. I mean, I spent more hours than I feel like I needed to on the random item drops, but even that wasn't enough to really deter me from really liking the game. I played through it. 
I mean, I mean, yeah, and and you had played this game um, before we planned it for the podcast, so you did two runs again after doing two runs some years ago. So the, the, that's yeah. about as, that's about as strong as an an endorsement as I can think of. Oh yeah, it was. It's definitely to me. I think a fun game. I like a lot of its the creativity with it and the tabletop elements, and the story is just good. Yeah, and I mean, I fall in this. I fall in a very similar place with it. I, I love Matsuno, and I love kind of this team. You know, the the sort of evilies feel is one of my favorite things. And so, if I can just get like a little, um, the the what do you say, the fried shrimp or the. Uh, the, the the calamari appetizer ah, yes. of it, of it, if if Ivalice is the whole is the whole seven course meal this is an amuse bouche absolutely if I can get that if I can get that for a few hours that's perfect so yeah it does have this big flaw with its key item drops but the mechanics are strong the story is interesting it's a fun little budget title mm-hmm. I mean I mean I I would love to play an anthology style series of short RPGs like this. I, I mean, the, uh, the, uh, I, what, what would we call them? Um, the, the, the guild, uh, collection, I guess on, on the eShop is, is, is kind of, uh, accomplishing that. But I mean, if every guild game was as good as this and as well written as this, I like it, it would be, uh, one of the great video game accomplishments of the 2010s. But, um, but as such, it seems like the guild games are at least interesting and unusual, and um, Crimson Shroud being particularly good among them. Because I, I thought I thought yeah. this game was I thought this game was great, and uh, it, it like it, I I really feel like it's it was like Matsuno's idea for a tabletop campaign that he uh, that that he wrote up and wanted to tell a specific story and give players the feel of moving pieces around a board and throwing dice for almost every action. And it's what a strange confluence of ideas that mostly works. (laughs) It's it's an accomplishment. Yeah. So Eva, am am I assuming that uh, Square Enix should just continue to, or at least should just give Matsuno as much money as he wants to make whatever he wants because that, that that's the that's the end goal here. We, like Matsuno deserves uh, great teams and infinite budgets, but I, I'm not sure he'll ever get one again. Yeah, it's it's one of those. It, it's definitely one of those things where it's like I I think he is brilliant. I just want him to be happy, <laughs> and so <laughs> if he is if he is happy making fabulous quests for um, Final Fantasy fourteen at this point, and that's just where he's at, that is okay with me. Yeah, I think Matsuno is probably more in a space for short time games like Crimson Shroud, and uh, iterative and like instance content like the quest lines he's written for FF fourteen, which are which are more than just one now because he did the. Evilise raids for Stormblood, and now the the relic weapons quests in Shadowbringers. Um, I, I think they're keeping him quite busy over there on the FF14 team, and I uh, and I uh, love Matsuno's work. I'll I celebrate him, but I don't think he's ever going to get that FF12 blank check ever again, <laughs> which is sort of disappointing. But also, you kind of get it. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious about his unsung story. I think it's oh that. Yeah. 
Yeah, that that was that um uh was was that a Kickstarter project that uh it had its own trials and tribulations? Yeah. 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 Don't I don't really know where where exactly that is now and how involved he is. It's like he doesn't really talk about it, but in the promotional materials for it, they still mention that he's a designer. Yeah. I, I'm not sure we should uh, we should consider Unsung Story as part of Matsuno's oeuvre at the level of a Crimson Shroud, or certainly not uh, level of an FF12 or or a Vagrant Story. No. But but uh, but Crimson Shroud, I think, I mean that that's three endorsements for a very interesting game that is curiously only available on the 3DS eShop, which still blows my mind a little bit. But uh, I know they should add it to the Switch. Yeah. Oh, it, I mean, there are touch elements that I think are valuable in Crimson Shroud, but uh, but I, I mean, I, I would think a port is possible, right? I'm not I'm not crazy to think that. No, I would think so. And I mean, it's definitely had enough time because this game came out nine years ago. Um, I was glad that uh, the eShop was still around for me to download this game because I, I downloaded it earlier this year in, in probably January or so, uh, and now I'm. I'm worried about how long that 3DS eShop might might last because of recent Ooh. news um, from from Sony and others. But um, sp- speaking of those Sony eShops, I recently went on the PSN on my PS3 to download Suikoden 3 because that's the game we're playing this month for the podcast. Suikoden 3, a PS2 RPG, um, curiously only available on the PS3 uh, PlayStation Store and not the Vita or PS4 PlayStation PlayStation stores. It's odd, odd choice, but then that's how I was able, that's how I'm playing it for the podcast next week. I'm still very early on, so I have a busy weekend ahead of me full of Suikoden and Three. And listeners, I hope you enjoyed our future discussion on Suikoden and Three because uh, let me tell you, there are people in RPG fan excited to play and talk about Suikoden. <laughs> Suikoden fans are, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Suikoden fans aren't aren't overwhelming in number, but they are passionate. And whenever RPG fan posts Suikoden anything, Eva, you can probably anecdotally uh, attest to this being part of the social media team. Like it, it gets a response. People love their Suikoden. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's one of the things that gets the most hits on social media. Um, if we post something about. Suikoden, especially like Suikoden 2, Suikoden 3, Suikoden 5, people will lose it. <laughs> and, In a good way. Coincidentally, those are the other two Suikoden games, 2 and 5, that we have played for the podcast. So I guess if, if they're the most popular trio in the series, Suikoden 3 was a lot was a logical next step. But anyway, um, uh, those Suikoden 3 episodes are going to be the last two weeks in April. Uh, coming up in May, we are doing four episodes about something that's a little bit more my speed. That's Dragon Quest. Um, we're going to have two episodes about Dragon Quest 4, that NES game that uh, had remakes for, let's see, PlayStation in Japan only, then uh, on the DS worldwide, and then mobile worldwide. Uh, so there's plenty of ways to play Dragon Quest 4. And we'll see exactly how we're playing it and what we think about it next month on Retro Encounter. Uh, we're, all, we're doing two other episodes about other Dragon Quest topics, but they are somewhat still in the planning stages. But uh, please look forward to our special Dragon Quest 35th anniversary episodes coming in May. 
but listeners, if you want to tell, uh, email us about Suikoden 3 or Dragon Quest 4 or Crimson Shroud 1, um, the best way to do so is to email retro at rpgfan.com. You can also comment on rpgfan.com's message boards or visit our Facebook page, our Instagram page, our Discord uh, server, our Twitter page, our YouTube channel, our Twitch channel, something streaming every day on Twitch, um, things occasionally posted to YouTube, although we're, I think we're somewhat more active on Twitch than YouTube. Um, and we also have four, uh, excuse me, we have three other fine podcasts, four podcasts total, uh, including Random Encounter every two weeks about randomness, Rhythm Encounter every two weeks about RPG music, and Phoenix Edge every one week, mostly focused on current events. You can uh, review Retro Encounter or those other three podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify. Uh, we're basically everywhere. Please listen to us. Please leave feedback. We appreciate all the feedback you're willing to provide. Um, but if you want to provide feedback to us at an individual level, uh, let's tell you. Let's tell you, the listener, how to find us, the podcaster. Starting with you, Eva. So you can find me in general on RPG fan social media accounts, um, t- uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and you can find me uh, personally on Twitter and Instagram as at eva uh, underscore l e e s. All right, and Audra, I have a feeling your online presence isn't quite uh, at, at, like Eva's or mine. But how can listeners find you? Um, pretty much through my email, Audra B at RPGfan.com. I am jealous of you, Audra, because you have not been <laughs> po- you have not been poisoned by the hell well of Twitter the way that I have. Um, it scares me. <laughs> your fear is justified because it's it ain't it ain't great over there. Let me tell you. But uh, in listeners, if you want to find me over there, you can. I am at the Real Monsoon most of the time. At Evoker for Dogs other times. Um, that is a convoluted street, uh, Soul Calibur reference and a convoluted Persona reference uh, in each of those screen names. But uh, you can also find me on our, the RPG fan uh, Discord as Monsoon Mike. But um, thank you, listeners, for listening. Thank you, Eva and Audra, for talking. Um, now it's time for me to be thanking. Thank you. Good night and good luck.